Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 11th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for braving the snow and joining us. Let's get a quick take on the kickoff of the National Western Stock Show this weekend as the I-70 corridor and National Western Complex construction projects begin in earnest. Next year's stock show is likely to look very different than the one kicking off right now. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, a big fan of the stock show. Uh, what do we think that's in store? I mean, is this kind of the, the last of the stock shows that we have grown to know it and as it looks and as it feels? Is it going to look and feel a lot different next year? It'll be a rotating, rolling change because the projects they're working on in one area will have to suddenly be adjusted for other parts of the show. But it's going to be a long, long project. So get out there and enjoy it now while you can still travel on I-70, still travel on Brighton Boulevard. And thanks for the great weather yesterday. Anyone who was out, that stock show parade with Dana Crawford as the Grand Marshal was a wonderful celebration of Cowtown <clears throat> heritage. And uh, nothing beats that photo of a longhorn in front of Union Station. It, that is the stock show. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, even though it's only once a year, the stock show seems to really uh, be a center point for Denver and Colorado. Uh, what do you make of its uh, latest iteration this year? Well, it's a great and historic part of the city, and it's one of the things that, that made Denver the, the queen city of the plains. Um, in terms of how much it's going to change, I probably pr predict maybe less than some other folks would, because in 1988, uh, the voters approved a tax increase because the stock show was threatening to move to Texas unless they got a bunch of corporate welfare for uh, reconstruction and buildings and things like that. And then have, it turns out a lot of that money didn't seem to go very far in uh, upgrading or even adequately maintaining uh, stock show facilities. So now I've got another corporate welfare tax to pay for it. So perhaps, as in the past, that tax will have little actual impact on the facilities of the stock show. It's nice to be kicking off the new year, David, with already two hits on your bingo card with corporate welfare. You're happy new year, everybody. Uh, Eric Sondman, political analyst. Uh, what do you think? I mean, this is it's it's a, uh, a cultural icon for Denver, but it is also an epicenter of what is going to be the biggest physical change in this city over the next couple of years. Well, it's certainly not the only change in the city. You drive around this neighborhood where we tape, or any neighborhood, and obviously this is a city in the midst of a rapid and notable change. I think maybe we should do a virtual stock show for a few years while the construction goes on at the National Western, and more importantly, while the construction goes on on I-70. Because I, I have a lot of confidence in the National Western people to manage the project, as Patty pointed out. It would be sort of a, a moving target for a few years, but uh, getting there is not going to be easy once that I-70 project really kicks in gear in earnest. I know there, there was worries it was going to go to Aurora, to the, the Gaylord Complex, and maybe they can at least temporarily host it for a couple <laughs> years. I get your point. Uh, rounding up the panel, Natasha Gardner, Articles Editor of 5280. Uh, Natasha, wrap it up for us. What do you make of the big stock show kickoff happening this weekend? Well, I think there's this, this wonderful moment every year with the parade, which gives people a moment to reflect on what is the role of agriculture in this state. And we, we do it because there are literally cattle going down this corridor of power and money in the city. And, and for a moment, you have to sit there and say, how does this all come together? And, and with so much that has been changing in the city, it's nice to have those, those moments to pause and reflect. Because literally an hour before that, the governor was giving his state of the state and talking about the future of agriculture. So to have those two moments in the same day really put a focus on this industry, which is vital to Colorado's economy. 
it was a heck of a Thursday. You had the governor doing his first state of the state. You had a new Broncos coach. You had bully. You had Longhorns going down 17th. It was it was Denver. It was beautiful. <laughs> Jared Polis was officially sworn in as Colorado's 43rd governor on Tuesday. In his first state of the state address, he outlined his policy priorities, including funding full-day kindergarten, closing corporate tax loopholes, and establishing a, quote, Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare. Patty, except we're working on how he names offices, uh, what, what, what did you take away from uh, Governor Polis's first state of the state? Well, between the inauguration and the state of the state, what, what was, I think, most impressive was the feeling of optimism people were feeling just because of inclusivity. Polis never seemed all that warm and fuzzy, and he certainly did more so on his inauguration day and also during state of the state. I think genius for naming names, not just the office, you know, to save people money on health care, but his daughter who came up with the happy birthday party, the political party, which we all should be charter members of. That was a great moment during his um, State of the State speech. He went hard on the all-day kindergarten that will be provided for free somehow through districts, short on financing, but definitely long on that will be the goal of the first year. In addition to providing more health care, saving people money on health care, which gets into more of the rural areas, the western slope, which has been hit so hard. He talked about that tax, evening taxes a little bit, um, still a little vague on how to do it, but that was interesting. Climate change, a huge part of it, environment. We are definitely going to see more, more oil and gas laws coming down. And um, then not much on transportation, which is still a huge concern for people in Colorado. But all in all, good speech, a little bit of bad poetry on the inauguration itself, but a good week for Polis. David, what did you think of the, uh, the week overall? It's a state-of-the-state state address. It's not supposed to be a, a full-on policy list, but it, it, it states some priorities. Some critics mentioned that he didn't mention a lot of funding mechanisms, but the speech is only going to do so much. Uh, what did you take away from the first one from Governor Polis? Uh, that it was a, a good opening week for him in both the inaugural and the, the state of the state. Uh, as critics point out, he's got lots of ideas for how to spend money. Um, and there is a lot of money around this year with the economy up and the effect of the, the Trump tax cuts at, actually add revenue to the, the state of Colorado. But other people point out that may not persist forever. You always have the problem of legislature raising spending in good times. Then they've got new programs like, say, full-day kindergarten that, that might not be affordable uh, in a recession. Uh, I think his best health care idea was uh, to improve price transparency. That's something that doesn't inflict costs on, on the public and, and does make it easier for people to shop around and, and save money on, on different procedures. Obviously, if you've got a rattlesnake bite and you're going to the emergency room, you're not going to shop around. But there's lots of other things for which people can shop around, and, and price knowledge would, would hugely help. Uh, I worry that the rest of his stuff on health care may be like Obamacare, enacted with great intentions, but a very much of a top-down, central planning uh, hubris. And what we saw with his Obamacare thing was it, it did help millions of people, and it also harmed millions of people who lost their doctors, uh, some of whom died. So uh, it, it's a, a dangerous thing when you try to get into too much government management of people's individual health choices. Eric, uh, in a previous life, you worked for uh, Governor Richard Lamb, so you know intimately what goes into a state-of-state state address. When you're doing the very first one like this, what, what's some of the behind-the-scenes things? And I really like Governor Richard Lamb and Governor Jared Polis, two very different people, but what's some of the things that go into drafting a speech like that and the 
uh, what they're hoping to get out of it. Well, once you're a mature governor, once you've been in office for some period of time, you get input from so many people, all your cabinet members, your senior staff. There's a jockeying for, you know, which issue is going to get mentioned and what order they're going to get mentioned in. I think for an initial speech, such as what we saw this week, it's a little more... I mean, Polis clearly had a speechwriter or some help crafting it. And I, by the way, I thought it was a well-done speech. I thought he rose to the occasion. I thought he filled the podium. I mean, some new governors can look small in the office uh, at the very beginning. Um, Jared, Jared Polis did not look small this week. I, I thought he, he rose to the moment. He filled the podium. I think it was probably more of a statement from him and, and a select few key writers and uh, advisors as opposed to the hodgepodge because quite frankly he's just been putting together his team and even to the extent he has cabinet members they've been on board for a week or 10 days or something like that and some of those departments are still vacant. Having said, uh, you know, I thought it was a, a good speech, a, a speech well done. I thought the inaugural came off well. If you were part you know, I, I noticed of all the prayers, of all the poetry or whatever, you know, unless you were like a mainline Christian, there wasn't uh, somebody necessarily there for you. Uh, th there was th somebody there for almost every other faith affiliation. Um, but when I look at Jared Polis, at least at this point, I think time will change this. I still have three letters that come to my mind, which is ROI for return on investment. And if you invest 23 or 25 or maybe $30 million in a project, um, we saw a return on investment this week when he put his hand in the air um, and, and took the oath of office. It, it boggles my mind to a certain extent that, uh, how Democrats, so many Democrats who get out of bed every morning railing against the influence of big money in our politics and are just fine, not just with Polis' gubernatorial candidacy, but with Jared's whole career. That said, it was a historic moment. Um, he rose to the occasion, and I wish him well. Natasha, uh, at least in one of the key priorities, uh, full-day kindergarten, uh, while nothing was completely developed, it seemed that that might be something where he, that Governor Polis might actually have to press his fellow Democrats and lawmakers because uh, that a path to that wasn't clearly built already uh, from lawmakers. Do you think there was anything in the speeches we heard this week where he's going to have to take a leadership role and, and drive uh, a group of lawmakers that may or may not want to fully actually execute an agenda like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, personally for me, I'm, I'm notorious for making overly ambitious to-do lists. Um, I now know there's somebody <laughs> in the state who does it more than I do. Um, however, there's every reason for him to be overly ambitious with the control that they have at the state legislature. He has a lot of people behind him, but um, as you point out, that doesn't mean that they're all exactly on board with the same plan that he has. What I I think it's interesting is I, as he was putting out that list, um, and, and none of it was big surprises. This is what he was campaigning on. Um, but as he was putting out that list, I, I didn't get the sense that he hadn't been thinking about it, that it's a, just a dream, you know, in the way that we've seen some more national campaign promises sort of come about. These are things that he and his team have been working on. I think we're going to see policy starting to roll out very quickly. I think we're seeing coalition building between his team and the rest of the legislature to make this happen. And of course, the big question will be how do you fund it all, um, which will be what dominates his, his term as governor. Should be fun to watch. This week saw the appointment of more state legislators to fill vacant House and Senate seats. Jeff Bridges was named to fill the state Senate seat vacated by Daniel Kagan, and another, Meg Fralick, will fill Bridges' former House seat. A Republican committee will fill a House seat since Representative Bob Rankin will be tapped to fill Randy Baumgartner's Senate seat.
A Colorado Sun report this week showed that one in four state legislators were serving thanks to a vacancy appointment at some point in their legislative career. David, this is a lot of different lawmakers that, at the very least, at some point get into the process by being selected or elected by a very small group of people. This is, uh, it's, at least they can fit in this room. So we're, talking, yeah. we're not talking about a, a major group of people. Is that a structural problem or simply how our system works? It probably, it might be a necessity because if, if somebody resigns in, say, March to go take a federal appointment, uh, there's really not enough time to get a primary and, and, and all those kinds of things uh, for a more democratic uh, selection. But it, it is a concern, and, and part of it's caused by the fact that the people do now leave the legislature uh, more more often uh, just for something better, as they see it, uh, th- than I think in the past. Uh, Senator Baumgartner's resignation was, was, I think, appropriate. He'd been stripped of all his committee assignments, so his district was not getting the full representation uh, in, the, in the legislature that it needs. Bob Rankin was a good choice. He was in his uh, fourth term in the House. He's the most experienced uh, Republican member on the Joint Budget Committee. You know, then now his seat opens up. Uh, his wife, who's on the State Board of Education, wants to uh, apply to the vacancy committee for his House seat. Uh, I think she might face comp- perhaps competition from Greg Rippey, a former state representative from Glenwood Springs who came in second in the, uh, the open Senate seat. And there's also an- another competitor who, who didn't uh, win but looked strong was Deborah Irvine. She's a uh, Breckenridge resident who speaks four language and has, been, has run for state house twice and is uh, very familiar with how over-regulation uh, harms small business. Eric, you brought up this issue last year of how many folks and, uh, are, are being are part of the legislature because of this vacancy process. I, I guess, does it come to, when, when we see it in bold print like this, uh, one in four of the current legislative group, does it become a problem to address, or is it, I the same question to David, is it just simply part of our democracy? Well, it's been part of our system around Colorado for a very long time, but it seems to be accelerating for reasons David expressed. I I think I disagree with David's conclusion, but his analysis is right. People are moving on. And as term limits get near to a legislator, they start looking around. Okay, maybe I can grab a Senate seat. Somebody left to be elected a county commissioner when they were elected a county commissioner in Larimer County. Etc. So everyone's sort of looking for their next move. I don't think it is terribly healthy. It is not small d democratic. Uh, when there's a vacancy in Congress, we in uh, a Colorado vacancy in Congress doesn't happen that often. But there's a special election. If there's a vacancy in the U.S. Senate, we give the governor the right to fill that seat pending the next election. But a vacancy in Congress is filled by a special election. Congressional districts are, around math, eight times as large as a typical state house district in Colorado. If you can have a special election in a congressional seat, I'm not sure why you can't in a state house um, or state senate seat. Just a microcosm. Those three names you mentioned, Daniel Kagan, Jeff Bridges, Meg Froelich. I mean, Dan, Dan Kagan became a state representative first through the vacancy process, then moved on to the state senate. Jeff Broad Bridges now became, and uh, Jeff's a good guy, but he became a state senator through the vacancy process. Make Broilick, and it, it it almost becomes a house of cards. Pun not intended, vis-a-vis the TV show, but it, it becomes a house of cards where it builds on itself. One resignation triggers several cards falling. I don't think it's terribly healthy. I'm 
applauding the Colorado Sun for uh, initiating this discussion. Natasha, if anything, it uh, bolsters the reputation for the, what we've called at this table the arcane process of caucuses. Because, you know, why go to someone's house or, uh, I guess, this point of gymnasium at the local school to be part of the, you know, who stands in what corner for what uh, candidate or who's going to vote for their local and, and candidates. But those are these small, uh, small mm-hmm. groups of folks who are the committees who name these people. So they're... There's more power in these caucuses and these little smaller committees, these gymnasiums, than we may have thought. What do you think? Well, especially when you consider our, our number of independents in the state. Um, so those, those caucus members, I mean, these are the party faithful, the people who go to every meeting who are so involved. I mean, it's, it's wonderful that they're that engaged. Um, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily represent the independent voter who might have voted in uh, a, a reappointment or a new appointment um, election. I think that's what's, what's interesting about... Um, um, both, you know, Eric bringing it up at this table and the Colorado Sun coverage is the more people know about this, I think the better. The more the voters know, okay, if I want to get involved in in this sort of um, appointment, then I need to get involved in the party in a different way that I have been in the past. And then, of course, we need to look at the advantage that this gives. I mean, once you've been appointed um, for the upcoming election, that's an incredible advantage. And so what does that mean within communities, especially um, as we, you know, always talk about campaign finance, as we always talk about how how these campaigns are run, um, that's something I'd like to keep my eye on as well. Patty, is this the new, uh, uh, I guess, running for legislature in Colorado for dummies? You don't have to really run, just wait for someone to resign and influence uh, two, two or three dozen people. Wait for someone to do something really, really stupid like Kagan or Baumgartner. If they had left when first the inability to use the right bathroom, the inability to keep his hands off someone's rear end, if they had resigned when that came up, we would have actually been able to have elections for those seats. So that's one of the issues. Giving credit where credit's due, I think Lynn Bartles was the one who first noticed just what percentage, and it was right after the election, what percentage of the legislators had started by appointment. I hope when they test people out, they make sure they know which bathroom to use. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Lynn's watching. So if you were first on that, Lynn, my apologies. Lynn Bartles gets the credit. So we'll spread that around appropriately. With Colorado Republican Party Chair Jeff Hayes announcing he is stepping down, a variety of political leaders are thinking of running. State Representative Susan Beckman confirmed that she is in the race. And U.S. Representative Ken Buck confirmed he is considering a run for the position as well, but has no intention of leaving D.C. to do it. Eric, the position of a uh, party chair, especially in a state, has diminished or at the very least changed dramatically over the last several years. Can it be done from Congress, not even in the state? Roy Romer was uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, a D.C. operation, while he was still governor of Colorado. So I assume that playing uh, flies flies both directions. Yes, it can be done. I can't quite figure out why Ken Buck would want to do it. For that matter, I'm not really sure why anyone would want to do it. This is, you know, I think of the Broncos hiring a new coach yesterday for what is essentially a rebuilding job. Well, the rebuilding job on the Colorado Republican Party makes the Broncos' rebuilding job look uh, rather tame and easy by comparison. This is a party, uh, you know, that just lost everything that, with the exception of Cory Gardner, who is very severely threatened uh, come 2020, has no toehold in Colorado. Um, And it's a party that really needs to reassess and refine itself uh, and decide if it wants to just elect true believers in primary elections who then get slaughtered in November, or whether it wants to be a viable, competitive political party in a state that's rapidly changing and rapidly changing away 
from a lot of Republican thought and Republican demographics. So it's not an enviable position. Um, and uh, if Ken Buck wants it, more power to him. Susan Beckman is an able person as well. I'm not sure it's a job I would seek. Natasha, how relevant is a state party chair nowadays? Uh, extremely relevant. I mean, with the, the full, full slate of a, a ballot, they have a lot of races to weigh in on. Um, you know, as, as we're talking about this, the Kenny Rogers singing the gambler sort of playing in the back of my head. I mean, that's the person you need. You need someone who can read the cards so perfectly to figure out not only what, what the GOP is in Colorado, but perhaps a national sort of uh, standard or movement of, of where the, the future of this, this party is. Um, who that person is and who wants to take that job who wants to be the gambler, it remains to be seen. Patty, who should hold them? Who should fold them? Well, we're seeing people fold them right and left right now. I think Ken Buck is a really interesting idea. If he thinks Washington is a swamp, the Republican Party in Colorado is the Sahara. I mean, it is dry. It is dry. There's no respite. There's no liquid asset. There is nothing on the to look at in the Republican Party that I've been able to see. So figuring out who you can elevate, is there a bench at all, or is it just a lot of sand? So more power to whoever wants to take that job. There's some uh, Democratic ad uh, writers right now writing down that whole Sahara line. <laughs> that, that, was, that was brilliant. David, wrap it up for us. Is this a big deal? And if he decides to run and wins, can Ken Buck do it from D.C.? No. I mean, he could presumably hire some great vice chair for the party who, who would, in effect, do it. And um, that, that's what Roy Romer did, too, really. I mean, he was the, the figurehead at the top of the Democratic National Committee, but the, the DNC has lots of permanent staff. I, I don't think the party chair sets the ideological direction for the party. That, that might have been more true in, in older days, but, you know, the, the dilemma the Republicans face of be pro-Trump, be anti-Trump, be uh, moderate on that, that, that's up to the voters, and the, the party doesn't really have the control of that these days. But what you need for a party chair is someone who's very good at the mechanics of elections, of the, the voter identification. You know, I, I saw in Boulder uh, outstanding voter identification efforts by the Democrats, and I think that's people have talked about how well that ran statewide. The Republicans need to get up and match that. They need to have the ground game that can find the, the, squish, the Republicans, registered Republicans who don't turn out all the time, pester them until they do turn out, find the Republican-leaning independents, and, and do the same with them. Uh, Susan Beckman, uh, former Littleton City Council person, Arapahoe County Commissioner, uh, certainly has some success in her own ground games. That's something to start with. Ken Buck, the official rumor is, well, he's thinking about this because of running for the Senate in 2020, 2022. Well, he ran against Michael Bennett 12 years before that in a Republican wave year and didn't win. So I'd be skeptical about his chances on that again. Let's get to our favorite part of the show. Disgrace of the week, as always. Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, one of the things that also happened yesterday during the State of the State speech, during the Stock Show Parade, was a press conference on a petition to get the Rocky Flats grand jury documents unsealed. It's a really interesting argument that you can do an audit of how successful the cleanup was by going back to these documents that date back 30 years but really know where the bodies or, or whatever are buried. So. Uh, it, it's the longest-running disgrace in Colorado that we still really don't know everything that happened there, and I think this is a smart gambit to maybe open it up. David? In contrast to Governor Polis's open-minded and inclusive language in his state of the state and uh, 
inauguration, the uh, the Donald Trump of the Colorado legislature, uh, House Speaker Casey Becker, gave a childish and nasty and vicious speech in which she accused people who vote for Republicans of favoring cruelty and chaos. I will say that when I voted, for example, for to re-elect Secretary of State Wayne Williams because he was doing a good job running the office, I was not voting for cruelty and chaos, and she should apologize for those hateful remarks. Eric. Hateful remarks. How about Iowa Congressman Steve King, who is a walking disgrace on even his best day, but this week was not his best day, where he cozied up to the idea of white supremacy and white nationalists, and then tried to explain and apologize that away as being no big deal. Uh, what Iowa Republicans see in him is beyond me, and hopefully he will be in his last term here. Natasha. I think it's a pretty easy one to shut down, especially as zero balance paychecks start going out. I, I would add to that the suggestion of just have a garage sale or offer to be babysitters. <laughs> Paint your apartment. Seriously? That's fine. <laughs> All right. We're running out of time. Let's do say something nice rather quickly. Patty. I want to say something nice about two Republicans. One, Walker Stapleton, who actually did shake my hand Tuesday night, and Cynthia Kaufman. I did an exit interview with her, and the work she did on school safety, teenage suicides, really laudable. David. Senator John Cook, who's sponsoring a bill to roll back the administratively imposed uh, Hickenlooper California auto regulations, if we're going to increase car prices by thousands of dollars and make cars in Colorado less safe, at least that should be something the legislature votes on. Eric. I'm a week late on this since I wasn't here last week, but uh, Denver City Councilman Kevin Flynn, former part of this table, for what he did in terms of the red light cameras, just an elemental bit of shoe work and, and research and turned around those 13 votes on council right on Kevin. We, uh, we, we gave some uh, props to uh, Kevin and Harry. It's date night exactly. uh, <laughs> work there. Natasha. To follow up on my disgrace, I would say the local businesses and, and organizations that are making efforts to help um, shutdown workers, here, here. Are workers affected by the shutdown. Absolutely. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. I want to thank all of you for tuning in and remind you that you can catch Colorado Inside Out in many different ways beyond the broadcast. We have a podcast. We're on YouTube, Twitter, CPT12.org. Heck, we'd send you a transcript via Carrier Pigeon if we could. So be sure to check us out anywhere you like. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.